please remain standing as we continue worship with a reading from Matthew 26, 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Welcome to church, y'all. Please have a seat. Good morning. Uh, I'm Chris, lead teaching pastor here at Riverstone. I'm glad you're here. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Matthew 26. It's the scripture that Mike read earlier. I won't read it again, uh, but I'll just remind you what it was. It's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, he prays three times um, that the cup would pass from him, and yet he has this refrain, yet not my will, uh, but thy will. And he comes back to find his disciples asleep, and he says this really popular thing um, that maybe you've heard before, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can open it. Well, I'm going to re- refer to this passage over and over. Um, but before we do, hey, let's pray. We're at church. Why not? Jesus, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come. Spirit of Christ, make yourself known in this place. Father, I pray that you would speak peace um, to our frantic, distracted hearts. Holy Spirit, allow us to sit with your scripture in a way that forms us, God. Lord, I pray um, that the dead would hear your voice today. Father, we pray that you would rouse a sleeping church. Would you wake us up, Jesus? Uh, Make us alive to what you're doing in the earth. Open our eyes to what you're doing in our families, God. Open our eyes to what you're doing in our church. Help us join you. Jesus' name, amen. So this is Jesus in the garden. Um, minutes before he is betrayed by one of his closest friends, Um, hours before his mock trial, uh, his unjust beating, so severe that would render him unrecognizable according to Isaiah 52. This is before his march to Golgotha, to the hill which they crucified him on, before he was nailed to a cross um, to ransom men for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation and take the curse of sin and death. Uh, That's what's to come. But it all hinged on this moment of struggle. Everything after this would be a direct consequence of the internal resolve that Jesus establishes in the garden, in sorrow, in trouble, in anguish, in prayer. It would not be a stretch, I think, at all to suggest uh, that the battle for humanity uh, was won in darkness in hiddenness, in obscurity, in Gethsemane. Uh, It was here, behind the scenes, 
not on the stage, not in the crowds, but Jesus alone, away from prying eyes, this is where the war was fought. And it was here that the gears of his death would be set in motion. Perhaps uh, more so than any place in scripture, we see the humanity of Jesus. He is deeply troubled. Uh, he, he's no, he knows what's coming for him, not just the physical pain, that was a big part of the crucifixion, but it was the rejection of the Father, I think, that loomed in his mind and heart. So much so uh, that Luke would describe it as agony. Uh, his intensity and the sorrow of this moment is so much on his soul that he tells his friends, I am deeply in anguish, even unto death, right? He's so racked with trepidation and anxiety. He says, I could die. Uh, Luke comments that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Sweating blood is apparently a medical possibility called hematohydrosis. Um, it can occur in individuals who are under great stress um, in which the blood vessels around the sweat glands constricts under the pressure. Um, and you can sweat blood. This was the moment of Jesus' greatest fight and turmoil. Um, we remember that Jesus also had a moment of temptation in the desert. And here, he's in a garden. Remember, the enemy said, I'm going to come back later. And we imagine that this is the second test of Christ. We see nothing like this kind of struggle in the ministry of Jesus. When he casts out demons, when he heals the sick, when he confronts the religious leaders, we see nothing like this kind of turmoil and anguish in his heart and soul, only here in the garden. And what is the center of the fight? What's the center? Well, it's, it's three times he prays, if it's possible, let the cup pass from me. And then he fights by asserting his trust in the Father. Yes. That's how he fights, you see. He says, not what I will, but you what you will. And you know, this is a really refrain amongst his disciples. This is exactly how he taught them to pray at the beginning of his ministry. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? He's, he's following his own advice. <laughs> he's taking his own medicine. And every time in between each prayer, he goes back to find all of his best friends asleep. And you can hear the heartache in his voice, his longing for camaraderie in the fight, he says, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the, the flesh is weak. And Jesus points out this reality about us uh, that many of us can relate to. He basically says, man, you guys, you have awesome intentions, right? I mean, just the heart of gold, you know, you want to make a difference. Lovely, lovely people. But when it comes down to it, you're unable to do the difficult work of staying awake. Your spirit's willing, but your flesh is weak. Your flesh, that, that part of you that's selfish and lazy and sinful. He says, that part of you it still has too much sway over you. And, and that part of you is rendering you 
unable to stay awake through the fight of the universe. That, that part of you that still has power over you, your flesh, he says, that's rendering you unable to stay awake through the dark night of the soul. In the darkness, you just fall asleep. Yeah? It's so fascinating. There is a cosmic war raging. You could, you could say it's the, it's the war of all wars. It's the fight for humanity, like we said. Right now, in the midst of the, in the, midst of the disciples, in Jesus, amongst them, and what we find is they're fast asleep, right? And of course, we can relate to this when it comes to our faith, right? Um, so many of us start with really strong ideals, strong ambitions. Uh, you know, we, we have this really... Um, dramatic view of what it means to follow Jesus, right? It's like, oh, it means a lot, right? And then after time and monotony and experience kind of runs its toll on us, we just kind of drift, you know? Like we're willing, yeah, but the flesh is weak. Our enslavement to the flesh renders us spiritually asleep. And what we see here is the disciples in the most significant spiritual battle of all time, right? <laughs> All humanity hanging in the, uh, the balance here. Death, sin, fear, eternal wrath, shame, darkness, the power of every demon, the power of darkness. All the rulers and authorities, right, sitting on the edge of a knife in the heart of Jesus, right? This was the moment that sin was conquered, y'all. This was the moment that death itself was conquered. It was in secret, obscurity, unseen places where no one was looking. Here's where the battle was being fought, and here's where the disciples were asleep. See, it was fought internally. The battle was actually fought internally. We like really, like Marvel, right? I like big, dramatic battles, you know, and like lasers and spaceships, right? That's not what we see here. No, the battlefield was inside Jesus' heart and mind. And it was raging, intense, even unto death, anguish, agony, right? Now, that battle had to be walked out in public, but y'all, it was fought when no one was looking. This is just true. It's just true. The battle for the victory that you want over your flesh and sin isn't fought in the external moment of crisis and decision. No, that's when you see what has already won the fight. See, it's fought, y'all, in the quiet. It's fought in the secret of your heart before the Lord, in unseen places that no one else sees. That's where the battle's fought. Let me prove it to you. Let's think about infidelity for a moment. We're at church, why not? We hear about this, and we think things like, how could she have an affair on her husband? We're blindsided. It comes as an affront and a shock. We were in community with them. Things seemed fine. Yeah, But what we don't know is inside her skeevy little heart, where no one could see, thoughts were allowed. That's where it started. You know, those thoughts, at first, they were resisted, because she's religious after all. But then they were allowed. And And then they were pursued. And guess what? No one saw anything. There was resistance. There was allowance, and there was pursuance. Is that a word? I don't know. It's going to go with it. It All of that happens 
completely unbeknownst to her husband, completely unbeknownst to her friends. She's not going to fess up to that. But see, the fight was lost a long time before the opportunity to sin came. It was done. This is why Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, in the Sermon on the Mount, seems so weird to us. C.S. Lewis points this out. He says, I was always confused that Christians would get so upset about thoughts of the uh, sins of the mind, you know, like don't lust, you can't be angry, but then they'll just, some murderer, all he's got to do is repent. And he was like, this is, this is weird. See, Jesus is getting after something. Jesus knows that the real fight of your life will not be um, decided in the moment of crisis. It's already decided. You've already paved the way for failure or defeat. And this is why many of us are shocked when we see in ourselves, when we act on impulses and things that we thought we were fine. We're sometimes the most shocked when we sin because we just didn't realize that the battle was being fought all along and we never, we never noticed it. We didn't think about the fact that when we allowed unforgiveness to fester under the surface of our life for years and years and years, that it would cripple us in the way it did that we would outburst in anger and rage at our children for nothing. And we're wondering and we're confused, why am I so angry? There are thoughts in the unseen places of your heart and mind that you're allowing right now that are killing you effectively. And Jesus is trying to help you right now. He's trying to help you understand that when the moment of crisis comes, the battle's already been decided. And it's decided in the unseen places of our hearts and life, right? Jesus said stuff like, hey, if you're angry in your heart, you, you're, you're guilty of murder. If you've lusted in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. And we think, Jesus, calm down. Why so dramatic? It's because he knows. He knows, y'all. He knows the real battle is fought in the unseen places of your heart and life where no one else can see it. And it's why you're not fighting, because no one can see it, right? It's why we can let it pass. It's why we give ourselves a pass over and over and over again because no one else can see it and we think no one's affected by it and who cares? Well, Jesus is trying to tell you something. Number one, he cares. And number two, you should care because it's turning you into a kind of person. It's turning you into the kind of person who when the, when the opportunity for sin comes, you will fall because you've been paving the way in your heart when no one knew it, right? Jesus had already won the battle before the cross when he said, not my will, your will be done. We saw the results of that battle on the cross, but it had already been dealt with in the garden, alone, inside his heart. Commentators point out it was in a garden that the first Adam rebelled against God. It was in a garden that the first Adam took himself up as his own over and against God's claims on his life. And it was in a garden, the second Adam surrendered himself totally and perfectly to God. And while the spiritual, while the spiritual battle uh, that would define the cosmos rages, the disciples were asleep. So what does this mean for me and you? Well, it begs the question, how many Christians sleep through the defining spiritual battle of their life. We sleep through our marriages. We sleep through raising our kids. We sleep through working on our jobs. We sleep through our friendships. We sleep through spiritual battles all the time. It's happening right in front of you. But if it's as if it's in a dream state. Anyone relate this? Can anyone relate to watching your life like a movie in which you are the victim? 
It's just happening in front of you and you feel utterly powerless to engage and impact and make a change. It's like you're in a dream. You're asleep. You're asleep. The battle's raging in front of you, but you, if you feel like, you have, like you're the victim of your life and you can't make a difference and you're just watching it, I'm telling you right now, you're asleep. You're asleep in the fight, in the battle. Our spiritual slumber manifests itself in hopelessness. It manifests itself in helplessness, feeling out of control and unable to act because we often see ourselves as the victim and therefore we stay in bed and we stay disengaged. And it's a self-repeating cycle. It's like me when I try to get up every morning, bless my wife's heart. I hit snooze because I'm groggy and tired. But the more I hit snooze, the more I stay groggy and tired. And because I'm groggy and tired, I hit snooze again. Do I need to keep going? It's a self-repeating cycle. At some point, you have to realize the way to stop feeling tired is to get out of bed. Now, now a lot of people have realized this. And, and so what they do is they put an alarm on the other side of their room. You know, you know that trick? But I've also found a way around that. Let's see it. Right here, this is, this is the most dumb thing you're going to see today. Okay, yeah. Just keep, oh, there it is. There it is. All the way to work. All the way to work. I, so while I was researching, I also found this. Where's the next one? That's probably the alarm clock that I need. Some of you can relate to this and you're not fessing up to it. You need alarm. And then what's the next one? This is the good one. This is even worse. Quack, 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 quack. Yeah. <laughs> that is, that's, you're welcome. That's like so dumb. Um, <laughs> if you can relate to that, me and you are buddies, okay? Um, at some point, you just have to realize the way to stop feeling tired is to get your butt out of bed. <laughs> it's like the only way, right? So many people, uh, Christians or not, sleep through the fight of their life, y'all. And it's a self-repeating cycle of exhaustion or maybe laziness and giving in to that apathy, which then makes you more exhausted, which then makes you more lazy. And you find yourself a victim of your own life, unable to act. Because the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak, you see. And just like the disciples for so many of us, dude, action is happening around us. Look at me. Action is happening around you. Action is happening. You got, you got kids. You got a job. You got friends. You got a church. Action is happening around you. God is doing stuff around you, y'all. And some of us are sleeping through it. We're not aware that we're losing the fight. The war is raging. And dude, some of y'all can sleep through a tank rolling through your house, right? My poor wife wakes up when a fly sneezes. <laughs> Some of us are sleeping through the spiritual battle of our life and we're not even aware of it. The Bible is going to use sleep as a metaphor for a spiritual state. A spiritual state. It's a condition. Ephesians 5.14, awake, sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. When you're asleep, you are unresponsive to stimuli. You see? You're unaware of what's happening around you. You're effectively blind and deaf. 
People that are asleep are blind and deaf. Someone who is asleep is said to be dead to the world. So some of you, right, sleep through a tank rolling through your house. While asleep, you do not have the power to respond to things happening around you. And the spiritual implications are clear. To be spiritually asleep is to be dead to the things of God. It's to be dead to the truth of God. It's to be unable to respond to the glory of God that the heavens are declaring. Unable to respond to it. Like you're seeing it, but are you? We're not sure. It's kind of like a semi-comatose. You kind of see it, but you can't respond to it. You're asleep. Spiritual apathy. Spiritual sleep. You can't respond, unresponsive, disengaged from his love and his grace. Every day, y'all, we're invited into the glorious worship of God going up from all creation. Apparently, all creation is worshiping God right now as you sit here looking at me, right? (laughs) Every day, we're invited into this, but we don't see it because we're asleep. Things are happening. God is speaking, inviting opportunities to love. Dude, opportunities to lay your life down are happening around you, but we don't see it because we're asleep, right? Man, God's truth, God's scripture, shining in eternal glory and power, right? Holy Spirit, wooing, calling, loving, pursuing, speaking, empowering, but we don't feel it because we're spiritually asleep. As Keith Green said, the world is asleep in the dark. The church is asleep in the light. And all the while, all the while, our apathy and lack of engagement in the glory of God, our lack of engagement in what he is doing in the earth, right, in no way lessens the relevance or significance of what he's doing. He's still doing it. You're just asleep to it. His glory is still shining, y'all. His Holy Spirit's rescuing, healing. His Holy Spirit's wooing. His truth is revealing, standing, right? None of our apathy towards those things in any way diminishes the power of it. You just miss out on it. You understand, right? It's like C.S. Lewis talks about a, a man in a cave scribbling on the wall. The sun doesn't shine, thinking that he has some sort of power. No, no, you're just in the dark, bro. The sun's shining, You're the one who's cut it off from yourself, right? We seem, in many cases, when the worship of Jesus is going on around us, when the speaking of Scripture is happening, right, when truth is being proclaimed, we seem to many of us paralyzed in an unresponsive state. Many of us paralyzed, unable to recognize spiritual beauty when we see it. And today, I mean, the same thing across America is happening. Pastors, I reckon, hopefully, are opening the Bible, right? Uh, People are in church. Christian community is happening. Same scripture read, same truth proclaimed, same Jesus worshiped. For some, their hearts feel it. They see the beauty of Jesus. Their lives are utterly transformed. For others, they might as well have gone golfing. No impact, right? No response, no beholding. Uh, They're functionally asleep to the things of God. And of course, When we are asleep to the things of God, it affects all of our relationships. We find ourselves asleep to our marriage. We find ourselves asleep to our work, asleep to our friends, numb to the things going on around us, right? The fight's happening, but we miss it because we're spiritually asleep. We watched each missed opportunity, right? We watched them float past us in which we see but have no power to engage. That's spiritually asleep. You know the thing about sleep? 
is it sneaks up on you. Remember high school? <laughs> Remember this one? Remember the head bob? Anyone? You're like, actually, you went long last week. I was doing that in church last week, right? <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a subtle surrender, you know? <laughs> oh. yeah, I'll tell you what the most terrifying thing is. It's when you wake up when you're driving. Has anyone done that? Dude, that's like real life horror, you know? Waking up to driving. Um, you don't realize, that's the thing about, this thing, right? You don't realize you're asleep until you wake up. And then you're like, oh my God, oh, I was asleep, right? Uh, horrifying, right? It's tragic, it's tragic. What, what's tragic though, is the thing it takes for many of us to realize we're spiritually asleep. That probably is, is quite horrifying. For many of us to realize that you're spiritually asleep takes something horrifying to happen. It takes tragedy, it takes pain. It takes relationships finally exploding in, in a way in which they can't be ignored anymore. It takes something happening that jars you awake. And of course, it's terrifying. It's like, a, it's like the alarm clock. <laughs> Shut that thing up. At some point, guys, here's the thing, here's the thing. God loves you so much, he is intent on jarring you awake. You may take his waking you as, an, as a, an attack on your person. That's how I take an alarm clock in the morning. How dare you? <laughs> Many of us mistake the work of God. Huh? Right? And we think this is horrible. Why would he do this? Because he loves you, bro. He's trying to wake you up. Again, Lewis, sorry, third time, one Sunday. He says, you know, God whispers to us in our pleasures, right? He shouts in our pain. Pain, Lewis says, is his megaphone to rouse a sleeping world. God can use it. God can redeem the difficult scenario that you find yourself in right now. It might not have come from his hand. I don't know, but he can redeem it. And he can use it to wake you up from your sleep. We think my life's falling apart how horrible, where is God? Well, he might be the one pulling the strings to say, wake up. Wake up to your marriage or you're going to lose it. Wake up to your kids or you're going to lose them. Wake up to your church or you're going to lose it. God's doing stuff, guys. Can, can, I, can I get an amen? I mean, God's doing stuff, man. We got to wake up to what he's doing in the earth. We've got to partner with him. We've got to stop, lay down our agendas and say, God, what are you doing? Help us get behind what you're doing. And I'm trying to tell you, he's doing stuff. Are we awake to it? Do we see it? Do we have eyes that see and ears that hear that right now you're surrounded by people of whom God has put in your life? They're not there on accident. You have an opportunity right now to love those around you, to sacrifice and serve those around you. He's saying, wake up. It'll happen before you know it. It'll be gone and you won't realize you've missed the opportunity. Happens every day with kids. We wake up and realize, oh my God, where'd they go? Now they're out of the house and I've missed it. I slept through it, right? Man, this is big. It's terrifying to be woken up, but we don't realize that we've been sleeping until we've woken up. We're numb to the world. 
until we are woken up. And my hunch is that most Christians can relate to a faith that at one point was fully awake to the glory of God, fully alive to his truth, to his scripture. It busted off the page, right? It was the most important reality of the cosmos. But after time, after difficulty, after the dark night of the soul, after long seasons where nothing seemed to be happen, happening, those things, that, that scripture, that spirit that was once so alive, drifts in meaning and significance and relevance. Are we talking? Okay, so at one point, something that felt so bright that it would wake the dead, now is like a flicker of a candlelight. Who moved? We look at God and we say, your truth's dead. Scripture's numb to me. Prayer is dead. It dribbles off my chin. Some, something's drifting. I'm telling you, it's not the truth of God. Amen. Could it be that the drifting's happening, but it's you? You're drifting asleep. Your eyes are shutting. And therefore, it has lost all meaning and relevance. God is still in control, y'all. His arm is not too short, right, to save. He's still doing the things he's doing. But it seems to you that he's not. Well, something happened, and what I'm trying to tell you is you might have drifted asleep. It might be the reason that Scripture seems dead to you. It might be the reason you don't read it. Why? It doesn't mean anything to me. You're, you're asleep, man. It does mean something. But the, the activity of it, the, the power of it, has lost its relevance. You've drifted, right? You've been lulled to sleep. Hmm? as if under a heavy spell. When the New Testament writers were looking for language to describe what being fully awake to the glory of God felt like, they said things like, I was asleep, but now I've awakened. They said things like, I was dead, and now I'm alive. I was a slave, and now I'm free. I was in darkness. And now I'm in light. Jesus said it's like being born again. You put it all together and we begin to get a picture of the kind of transformation God longs to have in your life. It is less like adding garnish to an already full plate and more like being woken up from the matrix, Neo. (laughs) Born again into a more real world. The biblical language of the kind of impact God wants to have in your life is so dramatic and holistically comprehensive in nature that we often need to pare it down some, right? It's not a small addition. It's not a minor, Jesus doesn't want to make minor adjustments to your life. Here we go, Lewis says, it's less like teaching a horse to run faster or jump higher and more like giving a horse wings and making it into an altogether new creature, right? We have to acknowledge the dramatic language of Scripture can seem extreme and demanding and sometimes maybe even unnecessary. And so many of us live in an in-between state. You know that in-between state? That semi-comatose, semi-awake, dreamlike space of am I awake or am I asleep and what's more real? I don't know. Scripture claims that Jesus is good and Seems good, seems like a good dream. Every once in a while it lands on us and we, oh yeah, (laughs) Jesus, right? But then sin and temptation slam into us, like waking us from a dream, and then that's the more real thing. 
And many of us just live in this in-between state. Let's be real. It's where I live. Some days, the good dream seems true. Some days, the grace of God seems real. Some days, the scripture comes alive and electrifies my life in a way that nothing else does. And other days, it just seems to lessen in significance. And the real, most real thing is the fact that my life's falling apart and kids don't obey me and this happens, and other, right? And we just flip back and forth. We just drift in between these kind of dream states of not sure what's the most real thing in the world, right? God wants to wake you up fully. He wants to jar you awake to his glory and goodness, right? Think about being in a deep sleep is someone else has to stir you awake, right? Someone else has to come into your context and, you know, wake you up. My favorite method is to wrap them in shrink wrap and then yell fire, right? Favorite way to wake someone from a sleep, right? Um, I think some of you may be hearing the voice of God today calling you to wipe the sleep out of your eyes, to shake off the apathetic spirit towards himself, right? And wake up, wake up to your marriage, to your kids, to your church, to your role at work. Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. 1 Thessalonians 5. I think we have to point out the ending before we get out of here. Jesus invites his sleepy disciples to wake up. He says, let's go, sleep later. He invites them to come with him as he gains the victory in the fight. After three times of praying, goes back, finds him asleep, says, get up. And he leads his sleepy-eyed friends to go do what they could not do. He leads his friends who could not stay awake. He leads his friends whom he loves. For them, the flesh had too much dominion over their life. So he says, hey, get up, let's go. I'm going to do the thing that you couldn't do. You don't conquer the Christian life. That's not what Christianity preaches. You cling to Christ as he conquers it. Hmm? You cling to the work that he has done, to his ability to stay awake, Hmm? to his clear-eyed thinking about the world. That's what we cling to, right? Jesus says, follow me as I go do the thing that you've not been able to do. Wake up. Watch as I take on your sin and apathy onto myself. Watch as I show you what true love looks like. And in this way, we see what the only thing, in my opinion, my humble opinion, the only thing that can wake a rousing world is the love of the Father. It's the love of the Father. It's the only thing that can really do it for the long haul. Pain might wake you up for a moment, but you might just react to want to get out of that pain. The love of the Father has to wake you up for the long run. The love of the Father has to land on your heart in such a way that it wakes you up. That's the, the complete giving of himself to you, in my opinion, is the only thing that can really wake you up for the long haul, really help you to go uh, in the darkness, through the suffering, through the night, right? Uh, let me just end with this, sorry. One of the reasons people struggle to get out of bed, this is kind of our 
application maybe or just what I want to, what, what, what you think about. One of the reasons people struggle to get out of bed in the morning, like, you know, the real struggle to get out of bed, like that real struggle. And I'm not, I'm not using metaphors here. I'm using like the real thing, right? Okay. <clears throat> it's, it's because they do not believe what they do matters. Why get up? It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter if I shipwreck my life. It doesn't matter if I do this or do that or don't do this. I think the Lord wants to speak to some of your hearts today and tell you your life matters. The way you go to work, dude, it matters. The way you talk to your, the way you engage your husband or wife, look at me, it matters. It matters. Get up. <laughs> Get up, man. It matters. Like, that's the fight. That is the fight. That's the fight. It's the fight that I'm in. It's the fight that you're in. To believe that what we do matters. That we can make an impact on the world. That we can make an impact on our friends eternally. If we don't believe that, we're never going to wake up and start working. We're never going to get to work because why does it matter? I'm trying to tell you, it matters. It matters what you do. How you wake up, how you engage. I think for some of us, the process of waking up is pushing back against the lie that your life doesn't matter. I think God wants to push back on it right now. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Your life matters, man. God gave his life for your life. That's why it matters so much. He sacrificed himself for you. Your work, your family life, it all matters. Whether or not you read the Bible, it matters. Whether or not you pray, it matters. It's important. It's significant. There's relevance and we have to wake up to it. I'm sorry, I'm losing my voice now. I think God wants to wake some of us up. And here's the deal. This is what I want to do right now. I want to do something different. Then we're going to get out of here. Um, If during the process of this, you've just realized, you know what, dude? I'm spiritually asleep. That's all, that's all I can figure. Because what you're describing, like open, like, you know, glory of God, responding, loving it, whatever like that, scripture, and blah, 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 blah. No, I don't. Spiritually asleep. It's, I'm gonna, I want to give you an opportunity right now. Um, that's kind of a little, don't, don't, I'm not going to like call you out or anything or make you come up here. I just want you to raise your hand. If you feel like you're spiritually asleep, just raise your hand. All right. All right, let's pray. Jesus, I pray for my friends right now who have been bold and risky right now. God, I pray for my friends that have uh, been vulnerable in relationship, God, not hiding the fact that it feels like they're just asleep to the world. Feels like they're asleep to your glory, God. Would you, Holy Spirit, God, reach into their hearts right now and wake them up in the name of Jesus. Come to life. In the power of the Holy Spirit, God, would you begin to reveal the significance of Scripture in their hearts and minds? God, would you let the scales fall off their eyes in the name of Jesus, God, that they might wake up to a reality that's so much brighter and, and so full of your goodness that it just blows their heart's imagination, God. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, do the things that you can only do, God. Words won't do it, God. Sermons won't do it. We need you. Come Holy Spirit.